0: Uh, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Genesis right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 14 tonight. The title of tonight's sermon is um, pretty straightforward. It's, is there a title slide, James? Who is Melchizedek. Well, if you've read the Bible before, you may be familiar with the name what we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks leading up to uh, Lent, uh, the Lenten season, leading up to Easter then. But what we're going to do until Lent is go through the Bible for about eight weeks. And each week we're going to study a minor or a background character in the Bible. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a lot of fun there's lots of people in Scripture who are not very well known, who may sound familiar to us, but play a huge role in, in God's story and what God was doing. And so today we have Melchizedek. He is well known for his name, that um, it was kind of fun, and then we also know that he was a king, a priest, and a bit of a mystery. And so um, I'm, giving, I'm saying this one. I absolutely love teaching out of the Old Testament. And what's more, I absolutely love it when the Old Testament points to the truth of Jesus Christ. And it makes me so excited when I think about even more so the big picture in the story of our God. And so if I get overly excited, bear with me. Uh, just sort of, I know for many of you, English may not be your first second, or second language, so. so that we might read it together. as I said, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to be reading verses 17 to 24. It says this, After Abram returned from de- defeating number uh, and the king's allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shabbat, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a throng of a sandal so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing, all my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who are with me. And Anar, Eshkol, and Mahometri, let them have their share. This too is the word of the Lord. So, background. Uh, where we are is way back at the beginning of the story. It's only chapter 14 in Genesis. Uh, Abram is not even yet named Abraham. That happens in Genesis 17, when he makes his covenant with the Lord. So we're very early story. And at this point, uh, Abram has no children, and he's figuring out life. He's he's wandering around modern-day Israel and Canaan in the Middle East, and sort of trying to figure out what God wants from him and what he's trying to do. And and Abram had a relative named Lot. Now, Lot, you may remember the name, is made famous from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit later, when his wife gets turned into a pillar of salt. Um, And And so what happens here, though, before all that happens is Lot gets taken captive by some enemies. And when Lot gets taken captive, Abram says, we need to go and rescue my relative Lot. And so there's sort of this army between all these different little regions in the area. And and these aren't huge countries and don't think huge-scale wars. sort of city-states and small kingdoms and and, and, and little regions that were all kind of wrestling over people and goods. And so Abram, being a good guy, goes and he rescues Lot and these winning kings all come together. And the winning side of the battle and something amazing happens. It says in verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. Okay, there is a lot happening in that one verse. There is a lot that is very, very important. So why is this such a big deal? Uh, One, the first thing I want to point out is, up to this point in the story, if you're reading through the Bible, just sort of reading about what this book is and it's about, no one up until this point has a relationship with God other than Abram. See, after the flood, Noah had three sons, and they were all kind of bad guys. And it doesn't say anything about their relationship with God. And all it gives us is the genealogy of Noah's son, Shem, and, and, and leads us to Abram, but there's no other details. There's no other details about worshiping God. There's no other details about uh, people were righteous, people were good. There's just name after name after name, and then we get to Abram, and God is intervening with Abram, but we don't know what else is happening. And all of a sudden, it seems like, out of the blue in the story, there's this guy who knows the Lord, and apparently, according to Scripture, he's also a priest. This is the first time we have mentioned in Scripture of anyone being Anyone being a professional worshiper, or professional, anything with God up until this point, like I said, as I said, it's just Abram, this is before the law, this is before the temple. What does a priest even look like? It's the first sort of leader, first sort of spiritual leader that we see in the Bible. And another interesting thing about this passage is it says that he was a king of a place named Salem. Some scholars have an idea of what this might be and where this place might be, but they really don't know. Some people think it's an ancient name for Jerusalem, but they don't have the proof of it. And on top of that, the difficult thing is this place. Some cities in the Bible are mentioned over and over and over. We have cities like Tyre and cities like Bethlehem and cities like uh, Egypt and all these different places in Canaan and cities like Jericho that are mentioned in Babylon over and over. Salem's only mentioned twice in the whole Bible. So we don't really know who these people are. It may be people who lived in Jerusalem a long time ago. We don't really have any more information. We know very little about this man 19 to 20. He goes on then with his bread and his wine as we will take tonight. And it, he goes on to bless Abram saying, Blessed be Abram, my God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. He basically goes to Abram and said, Listen, I know God has called you. I know God has placed an anointing on your life. And I want to encourage you with that today. I want you to know that God will protect you you to know that God is there for you. And this is a a, a total sideboard, and I'll say this all the time, and you may get sick of hearing it over a time, but I don't care. I just want to point out one more time. We have another instance of Scripture where God sends help to somebody, where someone is in a difficult situation, where someone may be struggling, may be wondering what God has for them, and we have another instance in Scripture where God sends someone to help and to encourage the very beginning of scripture, it's proof to me, and, it, and by the way, this theme carries throughout all of the Bible, that God doesn't want us doing life alone. God did not intend for us to go through life alone. I mention this all the time, because often as, as human beings, we isolate when things get difficult, or we try to cover up things when things get difficult, but God says no. He sends this stranger, this priest to Abraham to encourage him in this time. And, and As if this Melchizedek was not amazing enough, Abraham, Abraham, excuse me, at the time, the patriarch of the Jewish faith, gives him 10%. Gives him a tithe, gives him 10% of everything to honor this strange Melchizedek. And and I'm sitting here reading this, and it's, it's just a couple of verses, but I'm just thinking, who was this guy? Now I want to know more about Melchizedek. You know, Abraham, I know the story of Abraham. He goes and he tells people his wife is his sister, and he keeps messing up, and he does all these awful things. I, I want to know about Melchizedek. It's a wonderful story. And as the story finishes, in the last couple of verses, Abraham refuses to take anything from these other kings, and so that he might say that only God can him prosperous in these sorts of things that come about later in Genesis. But first read tonight. This is what I want to look at nothing else, is an interesting story. If nothing else, this is interesting that there is some priest who came from another place and intervening in Abram's life. And, and, and if you're anything like me, your mind begins to wonder. You begin to wonder, where was this place Salem? And what was Salem like? And, and what were these people like? And my mind starts to go down the road to all these questions that I will to get an answer to. <laughs> and I start to spin out of control. So here's some of the questions I thought of. So was this a whole city of people who followed God and were worshiping God that we just don't know about, or was it just the one guy? And if it was just the one guy, if he was the king, wouldn't he lead other people? So maybe it was a whole city. How did they worship? This was before the law. This was before sacrifice. How did they worship God? Did they sing? Did they have sacrifices? What did they do? Did they have any scriptures? Did God have God reveal themselves to these people? You know, did they make, you know did they have a temple? Did the Holy Spirit indwell? isn't some God. it just piques my interest, especially the idea of, I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but bread and wine being used. Bread and wine being used 3,000 years before Christ. Who is this guy? So, if you're willing, follow along with me. We're going to to do a mini-Bible study uh, and go through a scripture. So, in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 76 we have our first mention here. In Psalm 76, Psalm 76, it's in verse 2, we'll read 1 and 2. It says in Psalm 76, 1 and 2, in Judah, God is known, his name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. That's the only other time Salem is mentioned in the Bible. Psalm 76, verse 2. And, and what's interesting about that is it says, his tent is in Salem, his dwelling place is in Zion. That's what leads scholars to believe that Salem is Jerusalem. That his, this is where God dwelled, this is where his tent was, the temple of was. There. But that's it. That's all we have on Salem. Now, on the other hand, is mentioned a number of other times, and it actually gets stronger, as, as passages also flip a few pages to your right, to Psalm 110 page 335. It starts at 335. We're going to do the small one first, and then we'll go to the big mention of Melchizedek. Psalm, page 335. It's actually the verse we're going to read is on 36. 336. Psalm 110, verse 4. This is a psalm of David, and he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. said, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What's the order of Melchizedek? What is his genealogy? What is his lineage? What did he leave behind? Why doesn't the psalmist talk about the order of Moses and Aaron? Aaron, the first of the priests. And once they got the law and, and, and the, you know, who became the father of all these, this line of priests and the Levites. Was Melchizedek, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, wow, well, was Melchizedek the absolute first priest ever? Did he start what we all use and how we all worship? It seems like it's kind of a, a conspiracy theory to me that there's this guy that everyone knows about with me. And it's kind of frustrating. But then we read in Hebrews, so turn all the way to the New Testament. And some of you may be familiar with this, and this actually was the first time I ever read the story of Melchizedek. This It's in the New Testament chapter, or page 668. I'm not going to read it all because it's a bit long. But Hebrews is a book written to, of course, the Hebrew people, Israel, and and Jewish-believing people for the sake of Christ. And I want you to look at the end of chapter 6, page 668, chapter 6, verse 20. Talk about Jesus and and, and who Jesus was. And it says, go to verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entertained on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Here we have again this mention of the first priest, this guy who started this all. And then it goes on in chapter 7. way, way, long ago in two or three verses, was a foundation for Jesus Christ. And in verse 16 in Hebrews chapter 7, it says this. One who has become, this is about Jesus, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation, as to his ancestry, as the Jews often believed, that it was about who, the family who were born in and all of this, But it says, not not based on ancestry, but the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you have been a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, this thing we're doing, this life we're living, is not about who you are. It's not about where you come from. It's not about your family lineage. It's about Christ, and it's only about Christ, and it's only ever been about Christ. It's only ever been about Christ. Because with Christ, our lives are hidden with him on high. Our lives are safe. Our lives are secure. And, and I look at this, and I think, wow. This kind of we don't have very much narrative about him. We have two verses in Genesis. But he started something that leads to our faith and understanding now. I honestly believe this, that Jesus chose bread and wine at the Last Supper to institute that we still do today because a guy named Melchizedek did it a long time ago and began a history with the people of Israel to honor God and to worship him, to show them he was blessing them and to show them that he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. When Jesus said, listen, I'm breaking this bread as my body and we're drinking this wine to remember me the night before you, That's it's this has been God's plan all along that we would worship Him. The Scriptures, it, all Scriptures, show it's the same God of the universe. All since the beginning to the middle to the end to where we are now, wherever we find ourselves, all Scriptures are pointing that God has thought this through, that God has a plan, and that plan is perfect. You know, I read this, and I just think, this is so cool. So this guy starts at the beginning. We know nothing about him. But, but yet people see his influence and see this man as an example and as a role model. So much that it carries through all of Scripture. God has seen this through. I see Melchizedek leading to Aaron, the first of the priests with Moses, Moses' brother. And we're going to talk about another person around that time next week. Leading to the Levites and the the genealogies of priests and families and men and women who worshipped and loved God for centuries. Leading to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Leading to the early church and the wonderful things they did during the Roman Empire and during oppression. Leading to the growth of the church and the Orthodox church and the Catholic church. Leading and inspiring the, the reformers, civil rights activists, evangelists. All the way to me now, I look at Melchizedek and I think, wow, this is all part of God's story. God's story is much bigger and more complex than I'm probably giving credit for. Who was this guy, Melchizedek? I wish I had more written about him. What were his children like? How how did he father children? Did he have children? How did he lead people? strikes me as this, is that I want everything to fit into my theology. I want everything I know about God to fit into what I understand, right? So what do we know? Okay, well, I'm a sinner, so I pray a prayer that Jesus comes into my heart and I'm forgiven and I want everyone else to go through that same pattern so that I can understand it and fit it into my little box and understanding and have my theology work. But when I read this, I realize the wow, God is doing so much, it wasn't just Abram and his descendants. God is living and active in in the entire world. Who else has God revealed himself to throughout history? Who else's stories were ever written down? What else has God been doing? And oftentimes when I think of the Bible, I foolishly see it as just a picture. Like a two-dimensional picture, right? And I see it and that's what it is and I think, okay, I get it. But unfortunately, that's not how God works. It's not just two dimensions. you think of a painting, we look at it and we see it. And if you take a painting, you think, okay, what's the most famous painting, Mona Lisa? Right? We look at the Mona Lisa and we say, wow, that's a painting. That's what it is. That's a woman in a face. Right? What's behind the face? We cut it open, we lift it up, there's nothing. It's just two dimensions. But when I think about scripture, it's like a third dimension develops. And there's so much happening behind the scenes that I didn't see. God must have loved Melchizedek so much. And I wonder what God did sometimes. And and how, like I said, Melchizedek worshipped and his family and his city and and, and how they did these things. What were the depths that we don't see? In Scripture, we must remember there is a living God behind all of these things and deeply, deeply motivated that we would know who he is. And I never really sort of thing. I always wanted to, like I said, fit everything into my theology. I want to share with you a personal story. Um, I was, I grew up in a um, evangelical kind of Bible church where we just read through the New Testament and everyone told you, Jesus is your best friend. You'll be fine. Um, and, and, And while that was fine for a time when I went to college, I began to study and then after college I began to study more and I got really, really legalistic. I got really legalistic, and I got really black and white with my theology. And I remember reading things and and hearing stories and thinking, oh, there's no way that's true. Hearing things about healings and miracles and all of these ways God works that we don't always see and thinking that's silly. There's no way that's true. Until I met uh, someone who had lived it. You know, I was kind of like Thomas. If I didn't see it, I couldn't believe it. Uh, And I think God is patient with me in that way so he brought this man into my life, and I'm just going to say his name is Bob, even though it's not Bob. Because I didn't ask him permission. Um, I haven't talked to him in a little while. But I met Bob uh, a couple of years ago, and Bob is from Iran. And uh, he grew up Muslim, and he had no Bible. He had never heard the name Jesus before other than just he was a prophet. He had never been to a Christian church. He had never been evangelized, nothing that we would consider him, you know, same Jesus decided to, like we hear many stories, visit Bob in dreams. And I don't say it lightly, but that's simply what happened. In dreams, consistently, week after week after week, month after month, year after year, Jesus would come and teach this guy God in his dreams. And I had always heard these stories and like, thought, oh, that's silly. That's not how God works. God works in a straight line, linear, linear two dimensions of a picture. He reveals it, that's what he does. But I remember meeting this guy, and one day, he was still so I'm still practicing, still doing everything because he knew this person was living in his dreams and he knew truth and he was learning about loving people and caring for people, but it never actually gotten all the terms for it like we use in our theology. And one day Jesus told Bob to go to London. He went to London and got a hold of a Bible in Farsi from an Iranian ministry and started reading these passages and realized that he knew them all. He was reading the Bible for the first time and realized, oh, I know this. And he would say, What happens? and then look and see. And and he had realized that what God had been doing was visiting him in his dreams and and, and revealing himself to him so that when he finally got a Bible in Farsi, he was unstoppable. (laughs) He became a pastor. He became a teacher. And he, to this day, does work with people coming out of the Muslim faith and and, and work in Iran kind of (laughs) quasi-secretly. And all of a sudden, I realized I read a story like Melchizedek and I want to know all the answers. I want to know who this guy was. I want to know how he was a priest. What what school did he go to? Who gave him his certificate? Who said he could be a priest? You know. But there's no book about Melchizedek. But I'm sure he did great things. And, and, and I realize that God's story has more chapters than any of us could ever read. So I don't say that to discourage us, but to encourage us and to encourage you with your story is doing in your life whatever it is, is not by chance it's not by accident, it's not by happenstance, it's part of the plan, God has thought this through just like with Melchizedek we don't know anything about him, no books have been written about him, but I'm confident that he did amazing things each day we can meet someone who leads us to God each day we can be the person who encourages and leads other people to God there's so much potential within this church and not just this church but the church around the world that we don't know is there. And I think when I read a story like this the biggest thing I get is that I need to trust that God's story is better than mine. I need to trust that even if I'm uh, someone who's mentioned obscurely in one little footnote about stumbling upon this person and offering bread and wine that that's good enough. That God has thought this out. That he is working things out behind the scenes. And as the writer of Hebrews said, that he takes our lives and he keeps them safe. He keeps our lives secure that we might go and be bold, that we would be his hands and his feet and his voice on this earth. And in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus came and said, blessed are you, my most high God. And Jesus came in the same order and said, your God loves you and your God cares for Plan for you the same way He had a plan for Christ, and so tonight, as we go to the table, we remember this plan. We remember what God set in place. I truly believe, as I said, it, that uh, Jesus chose bread and wine for a very specific reason. And as we celebrate Christmas, it's wonderful, baby in a manger. Uh, I always sort of get a little bit sad at Christmas too. Because when we all saw the manger and celebrated, I believe that when God saw the manger, he also saw the cross. And that's a difficult thought. But it's because of the cross, it's because of Christ's sacrifice, that we all have forgiveness and redemption. That we can be reconciled to our God and know and trust that his plan for us is good. So tonight, before we go to the table, before we go to this very, very ancient tradition to honor God, uh, let's take a moment uh, and let's reflect as we did at the beginning of the service to prepare our hearts uh, for what God has for us this evening. Please join me.